Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. I am uh, excited that you're here um, this morning. If you don't know me, uh, my wife and I, Kelly, my name is Chris. We are the lead pastors here at Capital Church and uh, excited to be with you um, this morning. And so I'm going to get into last week. How many of you were here last week? Okay. Many of you were here last week. We talked about what the church is, the story of Jesus. It gives shape to who we are. This week and over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about uh, what the church does, the spiritual practices that give shape to who we are. And so uh, today, if you actually turn to Acts chapter 2, I'm just going to read just a few verses, beginning in verse 42 through 47, Acts chapter 2. This is this message is something I, every message matters to me, but this message really matters to me. This is, I, I, I really believe that God's going to set into motion some, something big in your heart. And uh, I, this, this message for me personally, my wife and I, is a seminal talk. And we hope it gives shape to how we do church over the next 20, 25, 30 years. And so I'm going to get practical at the end of this message. Uh, hopefully you receive it. And uh, if you disagree, email me at shane at hotmail.com. Hotmail? Is there hotmail? Hotmail. Um, and I appreciate uh, Tracy bringing, bringing in ornithology to uh, the giving talk. That was a powerful, I love that giving message. Uh, if you're a bird person, how many of you uh, here like birds? You're an ornithologist, okay. How many cat people do we have? Right, okay, so birds and cats, they, it's like half and half. All right, how many dog people do we have here? Okay. Mostly dog people. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. Um, Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're here this morning, and we thank you for your presence. I just thank you that you would help me share uh, something that's just, it's been on my heart for years. We've talked about this message, but I I thank you that you've helped me put it together. And Lord, I thank you that right now, Holy Spirit, you would take this word, and uh, you would do a deep work in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit, and just say what you want to say. In your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. amen. How many, this is not a trick question, not a trick question. How many of you like going to the theater, movie theater? Okay, many of you. Like, uh, my wife and I, we like going to theaters uh, because it's a cathartic experience, right? Good, clean movie. Come on, how many of you like a good, clean movie? Like going and, and you know, eating popcorn, just kind of hanging there's, uh, at the theater. There's two things, two interesting things. It's, it's really ironic. When my wife and I go to the theater, we usually try to get to the theater pretty early. How many of you are like that? Uh, because we want to choose our seats. And uh, I'm just the guy. I'm not like this in general in real life. I love being with people. But when I go to the theater, uh, I just don't want to be around people, right? And so we, we usually try to find, we, we, this, if you go to the center, it's inevitable. People are going to, like, surround you. So we like to try to get, like, on the sides or something like that. You know, you have a good, good ex- watching experience no matter where you're at in the theater. Ironically, though, and this has happened so many times, we'll find, like, the most obscure seat in the theater. 
and uh, someone will always come and sit right in front of us. It's a pet peeve. I remember there was a gentleman, we were sitting, we were excited because there wasn't a lot of, there was no one in the theater, and we thought we had the theater to ourselves. Isn't that kind of a cool feel, right? No? Okay. Um, but we're kind of sitting uh, in this obscure area, and this gentleman, only one dude, he had the whole theater, and I'm not joking, I'm not lying, God is my witness. He came and sat literally right in front of my wife and I. So I punched him in the face, and... So that's pet peeve one, right? Like when you go to the theater, do you like going to the center? When you go to the center, it gets claustrophobic. People surround you. Come on. Those who like to breathe, those who like their freedom and their privacy, say amen. Okay. Um, Second pet peeve uh, when it comes to theater is people who chew popcorn when it's silent. Just so you know, some of you don't know this. I'm helping you out. This is Counseling 101. When the movie plays is silent. Don't chomp on your popcorn. Like, find the noise part, and then chew your popcorn, and slurp your slurpee. Can I get a hello, right? So movie theaters are interesting for me. I mean, we love it. Obviously, my wife and I, we love, we love being with people, but theaters, what I like about it, it's, it's private. Uh, what I like about it is, and just sometimes, you don't have to do anything when you watch the movie. You have you have characters on the screen. They're kind of doing their own thing. Um, you don't have to talk to anybody. You're kind of in your own private world. You, you know, I usually have a good experience, uh, but my first movie experience was when I was six years old in Portland, Oregon, and I went to Bambi, and my heart was crushed, right? Come on, Disney. You don't kill the mama, okay? So other than that, I've had some pretty positive movie-going um, experiences, uh, but what I... I, I you know, my, me, not my wife, but I'll just speak for myself, I function more as a spectator, like a cool, detached scientist watching um, people do their thing and people making our food. There's a lack of participation, lack of participation. Why are we talking about theaters this morning? Why are we talking about movies? Well, because I think if we're not careful, number one, this kind of uh, represents in miniature uh, how the Western world functions. Uh, we kind of treat, we have a theater-style approach to everything. I'll explain here pretty quick. If we're not careful, the church can collude with this spirit of, we can call it radical individualism. Let me just say this really quick. I think the uh, one, one scholar, philosopher, he diagnosed uh, the problem of, of really the Western modern world, and he said this, and he calls it radical privatization. His name's Charles Taylor, if you want to read him. He has a thousand-book tome. It's absolutely amazing. Bless you. Uh, but he wrote, individuals have become the locus of meaning. Uh, thus, there is no longer an understanding that we, everyone say we, we belong in a seamless cloth, like a tight-knit social body. Instead, we... Uh, as we see ourselves, as we see the world, are just a collection of individuals, like individual molecules in a social gas. In other words, what he's trying to say is we've elevated the self as the most important reality. Um, not other people, not other institutions, not metaphysics or God. We just elevate ourselves, which has led, in his words, to uh, the buffered self. It's the self, again, which is the most important thing, um, which is why so many Americans are obsessed with the self. We have rhetoric and talk and speak about, and you've heard it. I mean, you've used it. We all have used it. Find yourself, take care of yourself, self-love, self-care, be kind, all that kind of stuff. We have selfies. Some of you take way too many selfies, right? Um, but we live in the, in the words of one scholar, the selfing of our lives, the selfing 
of our lives. Well, this buffered self has led to the possibility of atheism, which has led to the loss of community, which has inevitably led um, many people down the road to loneliness. Experts are now saying that loneliness is the number one public health issue. Mother Teresa, she said this a long time ago. She said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Up to 55%, I I might get, might fudge the numbers a little bit, but up to 55% of people in our country, my God, we have Facebook, and Facebook, I mean, come on, if you have Facebook, you shouldn't be lonely, right? Facebook is the answer to everything, but we still, up to 55% of people in the United States of America are lonely. This is due to the radical individualization of the self. It's led to many diseases. It's led to, obviously, paranoid loneliness and among other things. St. Augustine, he wrote this in his confessions in the um, third, fourth century. Uh, He wrote this. I love this. He's talking about the self and how we self our lives and how it affects everything. He goes, I carried inside me a cut and bleeding soul. Have you ever felt that? And how to get rid of it, apparently no one's ever felt that, but I've carried a cut and bleeding soul and how to get rid of it, I do not know. He then started to talk about how he tried to satisfy all the longings of his soul, his heart. He said he went to the country, he listened to country music, didn't satisfy. Decided to become a Dallas Cowboy fan, man, we all know that doesn't satisfy. He tried to turn to ornithology and the blue heron was amazing but it didn't satisfy. And he talked about he looked for drink and gardens and sex and flown around and friendship and nothing satisfied him. And then he, and this is before his, this is pre-Christ, pre-Jesus. He goes, my soul floundered in the void and came back upon me. For where could my heart flee from my heart? Where could I escape from myself? This is the result of our privatized world, individuals functioning like uh, atoms in a social gas. If we're not careful, we can come. We can bring this theater-style approach to church itself. Well, the good news, we have good news here today. We find it in Acts chapter 2. This is um, uh, Pentecost. We have Pentecost, and Jesus has changed the world and creation. The Holy Spirit has been given his people. We've talked a lot about that. In verse 42, Dr. Luke writes, and here we have the solution uh, in what I want to talk about today. He goes, and they devoted, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Can you say breaking of bread? To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then he continues, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were to, could you say that, together. They were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, everyone say together, and breaking bread, I love this, in their homes. It's so domestic. They receive their food with gladness or glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke, I love this, Luke 
gives us a solution to the, the modern-day Western problem. The solution is, you're going to love this, eating together. If you're, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. From theater to table. From theater to table. Over the next few months, I'm, I'm going to be talking about this off and on, and we're going to be doing a lot of different things to hopefully um, embody this and have what we're going to be talking about here over the next 20, 25 minutes become our lived experience. Um, but we want to go from a theater approach to church to a table approach to church. In fact, Dr. Luke, what he does is he emphasizes three times. Everyone say three times. So three times he emphasizes um, breaking of bread and food. I just love this. Jesus loves food. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Church, and, and it's very clear, and I, I can't go through the whole New Testament, but we'll just take Dr. Luke and Acts chapter 2 for its, for its word. Church is a family, and church exists around a table. Church is a family, and church exists around the table. In fact, the basic building blocks of any community or any church is community or family around a table. The church we find from the very beginning and throughout the New Testament lives their life around fellowship and eating and meals. I wish I would get more amens to that, right? So table, we're going to be talking about the table just a little bit. It's funny, there's a fresh emphasis in our culture on, on like tables or tabling. Uh, we have like farm to table talk, which has become mainstream, right? Everything's locally sourced. I don't even, I kind of know what that means, but I probably don't know its significance, right? So you've heard that. Uh, my wife and I, we watch TV once a year and um, we go on Netflix and uh, we, one of our favorite shows is Chef's Table. And uh, it's a show, if you've seen it, it's a show of some of the, the most famous, world-renowned chefs. And they show you how they, they plate food. It's extraordinary. One of my favorite uh, authors who I read about 20 years ago, if you don't know this, I'm a part-time uh, farmer. And so this really spoke to me. One day, I'm going to start re wearing Wranglers and not track pants, okay? Um, but he wrote a book, Wendell Berry. Uh, he's a philosopher and farmer, he wrote the book, Bringing It to the Table. I think there's a sense in our culture, because of how we've privatized our life, that, man, we need to have a more communal experience. That, man, there's something bigger than ourself, right? That we can't exist on our own. We talked a little bit about that last week. In fact, research is confirming this to be true, confirming the importance of the table. And I get this from um, a, diff a different um, pastor, uh, and he quotes from an article that there is a direct correlation between how many times a family eats together and well-being. In fact, the more you spend um, eating with your family, um, the higher your academic performance um, it, it affects in a positive way obesity. It affects in a positive way identity formation, how you see your body, sexuality. Uh, it also, um, in a positive way, undercuts anxiety and fear. C.S. Lewis said this. How many of you love C.S. Lewis? Okay. Um, he said this. It was one of my favorite things. Um, there's nothing better, I'm paraphrasing him, than friends spending time laughing around a fire. There's nothing, but I experienced this. My wife and I experienced this last year. We went camping. It was the worst experience of our life. I'm not joking. You've heard me share this, share this story. It was the worst experience 
of my life. Not, I literally thought I was going to die of hypothermia, right? It wasn't hypothermia. Exposure. That's what it was. Um, but we made it. And, um, but I remember the, I, and it's funny, I'll always remember this as the worst experience of my life. But what I loved about it, we had the general, Scott Maurice, he changed everything for us. But we had a fire. And I, I think fondly of this horrible experience. It's the weirdest thing. Because we had a fire, which I did not build. And uh, we cut wood, which I did not cut, right? And we sat around a fire where we, and we just simply talked, we talked about life, and we had provocative questions, and I think about that, and I want that fire, and I want that friendship, but without the camping, right? <laughs> There's something about living within this community, having a social bond, and people are in our culture are getting the, the clue. Um, it's funny, uh, communion, community, in the words of John Mark Homer, companion, companion all come from the same Latin root, uh, which uh, means um, come, uh, which means to be together, and panis, which means breaking bread. So community, uh, com- communion, companion, uh, simply means to break bread together. Let me say this again. We are a family. The church is a family. Uh, and the church exists around a table. I'm going to say it one more time. The church, I want you to hear me. The church is a family, and the church exists around a table. You see, church is not just coming on a Sunday and listening to some really good worship. Did I thank the worship team? That was incredible. Can we, can we thank them for that special? Hey, I'll take our worship team over Bethel. I'll take our worship team over Hillsong. I'll take our worship team over anybody. We are so blessed, right? Um, But church isn't just coming on a Sunday and listening to a beautiful special and getting the feels and hearing a nice word and then maybe having a little bit of fellowship time in the back and drinking some coffee if you're a guest and then we kind of just go back to our lives. No, church is learning to be a family. Church is learning to be a family and learning to be a family always, as we see the early church, always takes place around a table. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Christian is used only three times in the New Testament. Aldelphoi, which is the word for brothers and sisters, is used over 350 times as a way to describe Christians or followers of Jesus. If we are in Christ, if we're following Jesus, we are brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're my bro, you're my sis, right? We are family. This is the point. We are family. And I want us to shift how we think about church. Church is not just you coming and uh, like kind of spectating, checking out the message, judging the message, right? Critiquing. I'm sorry. You just, I, I get it. We all kind of critique. We all kind of judge stuff. Church is not about coming and just listening or watching people play songs and play the guitar and listening to a message. Church is learning to participate. It's learning to be a family. And that exists around a table. Uh, as I said before, Jesus, and I'm just going to make the point here, Jesus loves meals. Um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But from table, obviously, 
the, the, the association with tables, always food and meals and eating. It's funny if you just do a quick look, quick study in uh, the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it's through eating that the world became radically disjointed in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's through eating that Esau lost his inheritance, all because of a, of a meal. Uh, it's through eating that a blessing was given. It's through eating that deals were brokered. And it was all around a table in a meal. In fact, um, as uh, one uh, pastor, and I'm kind of borrowing this from him, he, he mentioned in the book of Luke, there are 50 references to Jesus in food. In the book of, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are 95 references to Jesus and food. So check out this list. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, Jesus um, uh, anoints people during and is anointed during a meal. Uh, uh, Jesus feeds uh, the 5,000 or probably more, 10 to 15,000 people. He takes um, food or he takes um, bread and, and fish and he transforms it. He has like a mass table event. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples at a meal. I, I love the prodigal son story. In the prodigal son story, um, the son comes home and what does his father do? His father gives him a big old hug. God loves to hug us, right? And not only does uh, the father hug the son who has come home, he throws a big party. Uh, if you've heard the story of little Zacchaeus, a wee little man, right? If you've been in Sunday school, he's about four foot eight, probably. He climbs up a sycamore tree. Jesus comes into a, a town called Jericho. If you don't know anything about Zacchaeus, he had his G-Wagon. He was a tax collector, and everyone hated him. He was considered pariah in that world. And Jesus looks up the sycamore tree at little Z, the wee little man, and says, I want to come to your house today. Let's have lunch. Let's like order in a Christian chicken from Chick-fil-A and let's have a good meal. And it's around a meal that Zacchaeus then, I don't know how long it took, but it took some time. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give all my stuff away to the poor. And incredible. It's through meals that God changes us. The Last Supper, before Jesus goes to the cross, has a meal with his uh, disciples. We talk about this all the time around Easter, uh, but one of the first things that Jesus does in uh, the post-Easter world is to ask his disciples for fish and chips. And all the people that like bacon and food and say amen. Vegetarians, I know you, you don't like food, but anyways... We talk about matter matters, right? Matter matters. This world matters. I would also like to say, if that's true, meals matter. Meals matter. Uh, one uh, New Testament scholar, he said, after surveying the New Testament, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's either at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Again, this is stuff that um, I think is important. Uh, another New Testament scholar said Jesus defined his mission which is to seek and to save the lost. Can I get an amen? Jesus loves this world. He's on a mission. Uh, he's a doctor, right? And he's here to save and to rescue and to put the world to rights. He does that, according to this New Testament scholar, through meals. Wow, that's just so ordinary. It's through mealtime, tabling, being together, asking questions, hanging out, talking about fantasy football, and then switching to talking about Jesus, and then switching to talking about how we hate cats, and then talking about philosophy, or whatever it is. It's through conversation and learning to be a family around a meal that Jesus changes 
the world. But what the, the, for me, what I, I find fascinating is that one of the, the I, to me, the greatest like theme of all the meals that you find in the New Testament that Jesus enacts um, is celebration. And some of you are not going to like this, um, and maybe some of you are, but it looks, these are my words, it looks like God in his ministry through Jesus is having a huge party. Okay, some of you, many of you didn't like that. I'll say it this way. What, what is God like? What is the kingdom of God like? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, I'm going to begin with verse Seven, But it's funny, when we talk in the Western world, when we talk about God, we talk about his love and how he loves us, and that is absolutely true. When we talk about God, we talk about his absolute otherness, his beingness, his beauty, his separateness, his holiness, and that's absolutely true, and we need to talk about that. But it's funny how no, no one ever talks about God as a host who's throwing the greatest party ever. It's like the party people, they go to the clubs, right? Party people, they go into the streets, right? Party people are all outside. Like this weird assumption that if you come to church, you can't party. You got to be serious. And all the party folk, right, they feel like disenfranchised. And so they leave the church and they go and they they party. But that's, that's, that's an analog or that's a cheap parody of what we see in the New Testament and what Jesus is doing. God is a host who loves to throw the greatest stinking parties in the world. First service didn't like that. I was hoping second service would like that a little bit more. Fascinating. Luke 14, verse 7. says, now he told, and this is Jesus, he, he talks, he's, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, um, Here's a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor, and this is what he told them. He tells a basic story. Before he tells the story, he gives them instruction. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Remember, Jesus is talking to some disciples and others. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, everyone say invited. Go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, it's, Jesus is making a connection here that um, the Father is like a host. When the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit, I love this, at the what? The theater? The table. Honor the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then he continues. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he said to the man who had invited him, he tells a story. Many people think when Jesus tells a story, this is like an arbitrary, random story. It's nice, whatever. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. What Jesus is actually doing, he's defining what the kingdom of God looks like. And what he tells us, it looks like a massive mess, messianic banquet. So this is what God's future world looks like. This is what the kingdom of God feels like when you give a dinner, Jesus tells us, or a banquet. Not just, not just a little wafer and not just a little bit of grape juice, and we believe in communion. But when you give a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, feasting is important in the kingdom of God. When you give a feast, you throw a dinner. 
invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Wow. And you will be blessed, Jesus says, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's funny. Um, I'm going to make the argument that Jesus, he loved to throw, throw parties and he was always around food. In fact, the Pharisees' um, biggest complaint about Jesus was that Jesus, they said, was a drunkard and a glutton. Now, we know Jesus was not a drunkard and a glutton, right? But we know, and the reason why he probably got this accusation is because he was around food and meals and parties. We see this. His first miracle was done at a wedding. Right? He turned water into what? We'll move on. There's a lot of... He turned water into diapepsy. Okay, whatever. Some of you are already offended. But he was around parties and tables, and he threw dinners. What do we call this? Well, I, I'm going to call it hospitality. I'm going to call it radical hospitality. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was a normal thing, and if you, if, if you had like a pyramid of virtue, hospitality, much like tolerance today, would be the number one virtue on top of that pyramid. Um, and what we see Jesus doing in Luke chapter 14 is that he transforms, actually invents hospitality. He shatters boundaries. Jesus invites the blind, the, the lame, the broken, the disenfranchised. This isn't tolerance. Tolerance is an agape analog. In other words, it's a cheap parody of what we find in Jesus, right? This isn't, uh, I, I, there's so much baggage when it comes to words and language like exclusive and inclusive. What I like to think is that Jesus was welcoming everyone, not just a few people, but everyone. And everyone that came to the table, let's call the table of the Lord an open table, right? It's an open table where everyone can come, where Jesus meets us where we're at. Amen. So hospitality is something that Jesus invented. He shattered boundaries. He invited all those who were outside of the kingdom of God. It'd be like, for some of you, inviting someone to your house that was a Republican. For some of you, a radical feminist. For some of you, let's, can we get honest here, a racist. For some of you, I don't know, a Dallas Cowboy fan, Oakland Raider fan, whatever. You look at the whole continuum. It's, it's you inviting someone to the table, honoring the image of God in them. And what does Jesus do? Jesus invites them meets them where they're at, but doesn't leave them there. You see, tolerance has no power. Tolerance is just about, I'm going to tolerate you. I don't like you, but I'm going to tolerate you, right? That's the extent of tolerance. We have something so much more powerful. We have a God who loves us in spite of who we are. You see, Jesus met people, and this becomes cliche because we say it a lot, but Jesus met people where they were at, not where they were supposed to be. The problem is we meet people where we think they should be. Right? We're not going to. 
We're not going to open up our house, our home, or our table for those people that are not like us or, or, or conform to our expectations. However good those expectations might be, Jesus meets people where they're at. We find in Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 9, Paul gives a command to the church. I'm just going to read a few verses. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. He continues, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute, verse 13, to the needs. This is a command for the whole church. This is our summons. This is the soul of the church. This is the sine qua non of following Jesus. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. In the message translation, it means it, it uh, reads uh, to be inventive or creative in hospitality. We're summoned, we're summoned, we're summoned because of the example of Jesus to meet people where they're at and to show God's love to them. It's simple. We're called to do that. The problem is when it comes to hospitality, we, we get it all wrong. We stereotype it. At least I do. Uh, when I think of hospitality, I think of, uh, man, like Cracker Barrel and a Southern cooking, which I love. Um, I think of someone who can, like, organize parties and entertain. And, like, my wife, she is the most hospitable person in the world, and she can bake cakes, and she can make stuff. I'm just not like that. Sometimes I think of hospitality. We have a hospitality room, and it's just, like, someone in the morning who gets, um, like, food for our worship team or for guest speakers. I usually reduce hospitality to that, and that's not what hospitality—it can't include that. But that is not, it's, 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 it's so much more um, than just baking food. It is that, but it's so much more. In fact, hospitality comes from a compound word, um, philo, and uh, xeno, philo, uh, in the Greek, simply means um, love. Uh, we get Philadelphia from this, and Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, but we don't like the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Okay, but other than that... It's a city of brotherly love. And then we have xenos, which means stranger or foreigner or outsider. Hospitality, and this is essentially invented by Jesus and the early church. Hospitality is the love of the stranger. That's what hospitality is. It's an open table, open door to those who might not be like us. It includes those who are like us, but it's so much more than those who are not like us. Some of you, I know what you're thinking. I felt it like, oh, Chris, are you, are you, are you, are you talking about tolerance? No, I'm not talking about tolerance. I'm talking about God loves everybody, whether Republican or Democrat or whatever, right? God loves every soul walking on planet Earth. And we're called to, and you can do this, you're called to love without condoning. You can love someone without condoning a particular lifestyle. In fact, Emperor Julian, uh, he, he uh, raised a complaint against what, who he called the atheist. I think in the four, third century, uh, he called Christians atheists. And the reason why he complained about them was because of their practice of hospitality. And he essentially said it's because the Christians are hospitable that they are turning the world upside down. 
I, I just, I, I realized that um, the, the, the older I get and uh, the more I'm with people that don't go to church and spend time with them, they're at, initially are not going to listen to what I have to say. Um, a lot of people won't set foot inside a church. I get that. They've had bad experiences or they have stereotypes that simply don't come from God. And I know churches aren't perfect and sometimes we contribute to those stereotypes. I, I realize if I, as I've gotten older that the way we're going to soften the hearts of those who don't believe in church, who don't believe in God, who don't believe in the Christian story is through our hospitality. It's through our Love of the other. Amen. We live in a hostile world. People are talking trash on all these different social media um, platforms, right? Uh, our political landscape is all about hatred and hostile talk and throwing barbs at each other. I do think as Christians we need to speak the truth in love. But I also believe we live in an age of outrage. Everyone is raged or outraged about something every single day. Ephesians 4 and 5 tells us that there is an expiration date on our anger. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. There isn't an expiration date on our hospitality and love. Right, so how, how are we going to live in a world that's built on hostility? Well, I think it's through our practice of hospitality. I'm sick and tired of Christians colluding with the spirit of this age. On Facebook, you can speak the truth in love, but many of you just don't know how to do it. You speak truth, but there's no love in it. Is this honest talk? Can I, can I talk like this? You don't have no choice. I want to talk like it, right? We speak truth and truth and truth. You know what? Most of your truth, you know what's behind that? It's fear. It's not the spirit of Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's you being afraid and colluding with anger, not a righteous anger at things that we should be angry about. It's an anger rooted in fear and self-loathing and your own emptiness. As Christians, we're called not to be hostile. We're called to hospitality. I just knew, I knew, I knew this was going to be a good service. Because you're thinking about it right now. Many of us, we need this message. We're called, not just a few people, not just the Martha Stewarts of this world. Called to hospitality. Every Christian is summoned by Jesus to learn the art of being hospitable. So what do we do? I've thought about this for, for years. I've thought about how we um, engage our city, the valley, Boise, even CUNA, even Idaho City, God bless them. How do we engage our world? How, how do we practice hospitality? Well, this is something I've talked about before. I usually talk about this at Easter. I just think that we should show the world that we can throw, because this is based on the example of Jesus, we can throw the greatest parties in the city. I was hoping for a bigger amen than that. If Jesus was a host and he was throwing the greatest parties on the planet, giving us, let's call it a foretaste or anticipating the messianic banquet that's a cornucopia of food and turkey, right? And no vegetables, right? Whatever. 
then we should be the best at throwing parties in our city. I've been talking about this for years. I do think it's going to take time for us to change or to shift our paradigm of being the church in the world. Uh, but we're going to continue. We're going to, I'm going to pressure every Sunday. I might not always talk about hospitality, but I'm going to pressure us into um, throwing parties and learning the art of hospitality over the next, um, get this, 40 years. This isn't, just so you know, if you don't like this talk, it's, uh, you might not like this church. Well, Chris, we gotta be serious, of course. Chris, you, you're an extrovert. No, I'm not. I don't know, I'm in between an introvert and an omnivert. I don't even know what an omnivert is, but I was told that I was kind of an omnivert, right? I don't even know what that is. I'm not an extrovert. I, I, to be honest, I could live as a monk. Thankfully, my wife is the opposite of me, um, but I, I, I'm okay with having a private life. It's just, I love, I love abstract thinking. I love writing. I love just getting away. I love people. Trust me, I love you guys. Um, but I'm not, this, this word is not like, oh, Chris just wants to party. He's not really serious. No, my personality, I just learned this week. Thank you, Jen Lee. I learned this week that I'm actually, I took a personality test. I'm a really serious person really serious. I mean, I try to make jokes. They never work, right? Because I'm serious. That one worked. Okay, good. I'm going to write this down, okay? I'm serious, but I'm also serious about being true to what we find in Scripture. Why, why is it that, man, other people in this city do a great job at throwing celebrations and they don't have Jesus at the center of their life? Does that make sense to you? Like, I, I don't know, I, I wanna out party, and I'm not like, let's go crazy, and we're gonna have these big, like, we're gonna bring in, I, I was gonna go someplace I shouldn't go, so I'm gonna reel that back. I was gonna say something I should not say. Uh, but parties that are like extravagant, that are not Jesus-centered, and we just kinda, unfortunately, um, we let people like just do that, and then we come to church, and we just kinda practice being serious, and I think we should be serious, but shouldn't we be serious about joy? Shouldn't we be serious about celebrating the love of God? Hey, that God met you where you are at, not where you were supposed to be. You're not here because, oh, you got your life together and you decided to come to church and then one day you gave your heart to God? No, no, no. God was at work in your heart the whole time. It's God who knows where you're at. It's God who loves you irrespective of who you are. Love that. So we should, as Christians, should throw the best parties in the city. How do we do this? This is a list from another pastor and I'm, I'm kind of putting my own thoughts in here too. I think what we could start to do, this is just a start, I want us to be creative, but what if maybe some of you um, decided to throw a dinner? Invited, it's funny, you could throw a dinner for your family. It's funny how um, the average American has a meal that lasts only 12 minutes with their family. I'm like, oh my gosh, we are living in such a hurried culture. We need to learn to spend time with our family. So I, I made a decision 
Um, Kel actually, she makes every decision for us, so I like to think that I made the decision to have dinner at our house uh, last week, which is actually the funnest experience all summer. My wife, we call her Summer Kel. I'm exhausted because of Summer Kel. We go from one event to one event to one event. We went to Roaring Springs. I hate Roaring Springs. I just kind of follow her lead. And so she, she kind of threw a little dinner and we had Papa and Grammy over and the kids and we sat around this round table and she made, come on, corn, not corn of the cob, but I, we talked about corn of the cob, but she we went watermelon and we had, um, what did we have, Kel? We had stuff, help me out here. We had burgers. She makes the best burgers in the world. and. Um, we talked about how we could next time have corn of the cob. Come on, can I get any man corn of the cob? Is there anything better than that? Lather it with butter. Take a salt shaker and just salt it. And then go to the doctor that week, all right? Um, we had such a good time eating food, but we went around and we just started talking. And for about 30 minutes, we talked about the things that we were grateful for. And it was amazing how uh, my kids, they just started talking about the, the things that they were thankful for. And uh, it did something. I could feel the presence of Jesus with us just by spending time with my kids over a meal. What if we started throwing dinners for our family, spending more time with each other? But what if we started throwing dinners and invited other people? Maybe that's not your thing. You have a messy house. Maybe you're, you're a young person and you've yet to figure out how to clean your bed. And you're like, that wouldn't be a good idea to invite people to come over to my house. What about, what about throwing a block party, right? Here's this ideas. Um, some of these aren't mine. Some of these are. What, what if we turned our, our homes, if you're kind of a, a dinner host kind of person and you have your act together and you clean your bed, okay? Um, what if you turn your house into a place of help, a place of hospitality? Uh, what if you like football, right? We're, what, 48 days from the start of football? My wife, she quips. Um, when football season comes, she tells me that she'll see me in December, right? Um, Thursday night football. Maybe you do something on a Thursday night. When it comes to football, invite some guys over. Uh, what if you love to read? You're a voracious reader. You want to talk about something. Maybe do a reading group. Maybe a mom group. Maybe it's... Hospitality isn't just baking and cooking, and it certainly can be. Hospitality is so much more than that. It's funny how we often overlook what we have as a means for hospitality. Everyone has something that God has given them. So use it. I'll say that again. Everyone has something that God has given them. So use it for the kingdom. If you like to read, use it. If you like to, I was going to say yarn, <laughs> weave stuff, material, use it. If you're a mom with lots of kids, use that for God's glory. Amen. Zario Butterfield is she? She uh, amazing author. She's a fascinating story. She was a feminist going to get into it. She talks a lot about sexual identity. Read her stuff over the last few years. Really good stuff. Recommend her. She talks about hospitality and she goes, um, she writes, we need to see our homes. Maybe you don't have a home. Just think of your gift. If you have a home, see this as at least think for this. Many people see their homes not as their own, 
um, or people, excuse me, need to see their homes not as their own, but as God's gift, as a furtherance of God's kingdom. She said this, the gospel comes with a house key. We can say the gospel comes with a meal. The gospel comes with a dinner. The gospel comes, hey, you might be thinking I don't have a home or I don't want to invite people over to my house. Do we go to Red Robin anymore? Go to Red Robin and turn Red Robin into your table and invite people. Invite your friends, but invite people that you might not know. Um, I'm riffing off somebody. I think this is, this is original to me. Just go with it. Homes are not for hiding. Homes are not for hiding. Suburbia, homes are not for hiding. We're going, you know, we usually think of our home as a place where we just like, we get away. It's otherworldly. We get rest. And those are good things. But homes are not for hiding. They're for helping. And what if we started to throw parties from our house? Or again, if you don't have a home or you're just not good at baking, cooking, I recommend use your gift as a way to serve strangers, to serve those you don't know, your your neighbor, that person at work. Take them to coffee, be hospitable. You don't even have to talk theology. You don't even have to be funny. Just be you and use the strengths that God has given you to serve and to love the people in our city. We're not just going to change the world through our teaching, and I believe in teaching. We're also going to change the world through our tabling. We will focus the next 25 years on teaching and tabling. And that is how I believe. You don't have to believe me. I know you believe me. I'm not going to say that. But I believe that the Treasure Valley will be turned upside down through our hospitality and through our serving the city and the people. This is why we do what we do at Easter. This is why we do what we do at the big events. We want to offer big events with no strings attached. We want to show people the generosity that God and the love love that God has for people. This is our summons. This is the call of God. We are in this hour and in this culture that is built on hostility and rage and anger. We are summoned. I want you to hear me. We are summoned to live a life of hospitality. Showing the people God's love. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.